Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily, and I have Victoria here as well. And today's topic is something that I'm really excited that we're covering today and diving into. I think it's a really fascinating subject. So we're going to be talking about whistleblowers today. And for those of you who don't know what a whistleblower is and you're just tuning in to find out, I'll go ahead and read a definition off for you guys. So according to the Government Accountability Project, a whistleblower is an employee who discloses information that they reasonably believe is evidence of illegality, gross waste or fraud, mismanagement, abuse of power, general wrongdoing, or a substantial and specific danger to public health and safety. And so obviously whistleblowing can happen on a political scale like we're going to be talking about today and as well as in everyday life. So we're excited to have our um, special guest for today join us for this conversation. And I'm going to go ahead and let Victoria introduce this special guest. And our guest today is attorney Stephen Cohn, who is one of the nation's top lawyers when it comes to whistleblower protections. And I'm super excited to talk to him. And I'm super excited that he took the time to speak with us about the legalities of whistleblower protections and some of the issues that he's concerned with. We'll get into that later in the podcast, but we'll go ahead and dive right into our questions. So our first question for you is, Obviously, whistleblowing can happen, like I said, on a very small scale and then on a large scale as well. So could you give us some of those examples of what would be a small scale example compared to, you know, a large government scale scandal when it comes to whistleblowing? If you think something's happening at the job that's not safe, can you report it? And to whom and what type of protection would you have if you do? So that's an everyday occurrence for thousands of employees. Now to go to the bigger scale, take international banking, uh, illegal Swiss bank accounts. So say a banker in Switzerland wants to report U.S. citizens who have illegal accounts and have been avoiding taxes. So that's a transnational whistleblower often against a major financial institution. So you could go from on the job, day to day, all the way up to reporting the most powerful corporations uh, for illegal conduct. Sure. And so, and, and, and these whistleblowers are not always political or government figures, am I correct? They can be, you know, an everyday person in a workforce who is, you know, going uh, to HR or uh, et cetera to make a complaint. Um, so one of my questions is, you know, one of the big things that's going on or has been going on for a couple of years is, you know, the whole Scientology uh, scandal and the corruption there. So um, in me thinking about whistleblowing, I was thinking, you know, is would Leah Remini exposing the corruption of Scientology be an example of whistleblowing, you know, on a celebrity level? Sure. So to understand whistleblowing, you need to know that there's no one whistleblower law. So it's not like I think I want to report wrongdoing. I check this box. Doesn't exist. 
there's maybe 60 separate laws. There's one for securities fraud. There's one for occupational fraud. There's one for environment. There's one for airlines, automobiles, blah, 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 goes on. So the first trick, most important trick, is to figure out what is the wrongdoing you're reporting and whether there's a law to protect you. To make matters even more complex, all 50 states have their own level of whistleblower protection and definitions. So you're looking at 50 states, 60 separate federal laws. So it's always very interesting. So in the question on Scientology, the issue isn't whether you can blow the whistle on Scientology. You can blow the whistle on the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. You can blow the whistle on your government. You can blow the whistle on your bank. It's really the issue is what are you reporting and whether what you're disclosing can be protected. So if it's generally like a politician, I don't like these people, that's not going to cover it. But if they're extorting money, committing a fraud, uh, the mail fraud, wire fraud, right. uh, these then it kicks into a potential whistleblower case. And one thing that we always try to emphasize, whistleblowing is a big, big deal. You put your career and your reputation at risk. So it's so important to do it right and be careful when you're doing it. Uh, so many people think that reporting wrongdoing is it's just the right thing to do, so I'll just go do it. Yes, it's the right thing to do, but you have to do it smart. And that's like something like Scientology. You can't, let's say, your own bias or opinion on something cloud whether what you're reporting will be protected. Right. And so, like you were saying, so the reason that most of these people come forward, you know, some people might say, why would somebody come out and go through all of that trouble just to come forward and report something? And it sounds like you're saying, you know, they're kind of doing it as a moral obligation to themselves. They feel like something is wrong. Um, and it's a moral obligation. Well, that's correct. So most whistleblowers, or pretty much all of them, see something and they feel it's wrong or they know it's wrong. Now, the question of moral obligation is much more complex because if mm. your anti-fraud and anti-corruption laws relied only on morally, you know, uh, high morality and people would report for the highest, you know, good reasons, you wouldn't have an anti-fraud program. Most people won't report. Corruption would be rampant. So one of the most important developments in whistleblower law has been to incentivize reporting, which means, mm -hmm. and something we really support, some form of reward that if you report wrongdoing and if it turns out what you're reporting is accurate, and leads to a sanction. In other words, someone's actually found guilty, then you can get a reward. So what that does is it, first off, incentivizes many more people than just those who would report for ethical reasons. When I say many more, hundreds of times more. Mm -hmm. Second, it focuses the whistleblower mm -hmm. on the wrongdoing itself. 
because you can only get the reward if what you're turning in results in a sanction. In other words, it's a real violation. The person's found guilty or pleads guilty, so you had strong evidence, and then you qualify. So what it's kind of telling whistleblowers or any potential employee is the door is open to effectively and often confidentially report. But if you're going to report, make sure it's worth it. In other words, worth putting your career on the line, your reputation on the line. So to also put this in a context, if a whistleblower reports a major institution, you're, you're looking at an individual that will always lack resources in comparison to the corporation or the government entity or maybe the Church of Scientology or whomever they're reporting. It's always a David versus Goliath situation, which means in most cases, the whistleblower loses. So the new laws have shifted that and they let people report confidentially and anonymously and they incentivize reporting when you really have the good evidence, when it's worth taking the risk. This has been the major shift and revolution in the good strong whistleblower laws. Mm-hmm. So so let's talk about the whistleblowers themselves. For the most part, they're taking part in illegal activity in, in these cases. That's why they plead guilty and that's why they have insider information or whatever information that they somehow obtain. It's because they somehow participated in an illegal act. Why is it important or I, I was just kind of trying to to understand why would it be important that although these these people are participating in some sort of illegal act that they still receive these protections that they still receive fair representation that they still receive some sort of trial and 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 um someone to defend them when coming forward with this information well, this is a fantastic question and it goes to the heart of these new developments in whistleblowing back in 1863 U.S. Congress passed what is today the most effective anti-corruption, anti-fraud law in America called the False Claims Act. It was passed during the uh, Civil War because there was massive fraud on the Union side, people stealing, you know, they were selling gunpowder, but it was really sawdust. They were selling meat to the Union Army that was contaminated, soldiers were dying, etc. So to stop these frauds, they passed this law. And when they debated it, the Senate sponsors said, it takes a thief to catch a thief. We need to incentivize those inside these frauds to step forward and turn in their fellow conspirators. That was visionary because what we now know in complex white-collar crime There'll be many participants. So, for example, someone may want to pay a bribe, but they may give someone the job of handing over the envelope. Even a secretary may lick, you know, lick the stand. Uh, so the key is, and then what we also learned is the people with the best information about these frauds are participants. 
because the frauds are designed to be secret. So if you can get someone from within a fraud to flip and turn in that fraud, you are now working with the best informant possible. This transforms whistleblower laws as they're commonly known and understood in the general public to anti-corruption laws, laws designed to effectively fight corruption. Best example, bankers. So one of the big cases that developed was a Swiss banker who had U.S. clients who were hiding hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. So the banker obviously has engaged in, in tax fraud. The banker has set up accounts for U.S. clients. That might be perfectly legal in Switzerland, but it's a serious felony in the United States. So how do you get a banker who is the only person who you could get to turn in these secret accounts? Because they know who the clients are. The accounts are secret, but the bankers know. How do you do it? It's through these new whistleblower laws. And the new whistleblower laws could go to the banker and say, you turn in your U.S. clients and you will get a financial reward. And it doesn't matter if you participated. You qualify. Now, who's excluded if you're found guilty criminally? The kingpins, those who plan and initiate. So if you're the kingpin who sets up the big fraudulent scheme, you'll be out. I've never had a client who is a kingpin. But if you're a participant, meaning you have good firsthand knowledge, and often you're just doing the job they hired you to do, you're fully covered. And they tend now to be the best whistleblowers. So again, this defies some of the uh, preconceptions of who a whistleblower is and what whistleblowing is. The best way to look at it today is that whistleblowers are on the front line of fighting tax fraud, securities fraud, money laundering, international bribery. There are thousands of them. They are working confidentially. They are turning in the biggest criminal cases, and their effectiveness now is fully recognized by the Department of Justice, the SEC, the IRS. And that fact, it's not just recognized. The whistleblower is now recognized as the most important player why? White-collar crime, corruption, is all designed to be secret. A good bribe is a bribe that no one knows was paid. How do you know someone got a bribe? So that's the deal. So, and what's amazing is it's working better than anyone ever imagined. Mm-hmm. And um, the case that you're talking about was actually uh, about the Swiss banks was actually one of your own cases. Then I just want to make a note here that people can learn more about that case on your website. And we'll, of course, link it to the article that this podcast will be in. Um, the 60 minute special that you appeared in, uh, the case study, we'll, we'll link all those details in the podcast notes. Um, but I do want to, I've, I've, while researching who you are, I've noticed that you've definitely had a hand in um, looking at the legalities of whistleblower protections, setting precedents, etc. What are some some issues 
that are kind of raising your eyes? Or are there any issues that you still feel like there should be some sort of precedent laid? Oh, yeah. Okay, so what are the big issues? Well, I'm going to first give you the one that has me the most angry right now. Okay. I'm not necessarily an angry person. (laughs) This just has me infuriated. Among the worst whistleblower laws in this country are for occupational safety. So the workers who've been forced to work work in situations in which they're exposed to Mm COVID-19, there's a law that says you have a right to a safe working environment. And you have a right to refuse to perform work that could harm you. Okay? That law is terrible. It's enforced by the Secretary of Labor, who today is Mr. Scalia, the son of the former Supreme Court Justice, and a complete Chamber of Commerce pro-corporate lawyer who's who's despised and is advocated against whistleblowers his entire career. And only the Labor Department can file lawsuits on behalf of whistleblowers fired for blowing the whistle on COVID-19 safety. It's a disaster. And we have gone to Congress year after year after year trying to make this whistleblower law work because it's it has the most defective features in comparison to all the others. The other whistleblower laws, you can go to court, you can defend yourself. This one won't even allow you to have your own hearing. You're at the mercy of the Labor Department. And if they say no, the door is closed. And now, and it's Eugene Scalia runs it, but even when the Democrats come in, they are more sympathetic, but they say they lack the resources. So it's like 98% of all cases are closed because, you know, if the worker can file their own lawsuit, they get their own lawyer, they pursue it. If it's up to the government, good luck, stand online. So th- this is something, and it's an indication of some of the loopholes that exist, some of the insensitivity in Congress some of the power of special interests in this particular law. The Chamber of Commerce lobbyists have been very active and have spiked every attempt to fix this since 1986, when the Ronald Reagan-appointed administrative conference unanimously recommended fixing this law. It's been spiked. So, yeah, so this is a real indication of the downside of the weaknesses and, and the political power of certain special interests to, you know, to defeat whistleblowing in Congress. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Thank you for that, like, analogy almost of, of with COVID comparing whistleblowing to what's going on right now. Um, I think that's a great comparison. And a lot of people, I mean, I didn't even really necessarily think of it that way. So thank you for that. Um, I kind of want to talk about, you know, the progression of protection laws for whistleblowers, Um, you know, compared from around 2012, you know, Barack Obama uh, issued a lot of directives um, during his administration. So what's kind of the progression of protection laws that were in place, um, that are in place now with this current administration compared to how they were, you know, um, 
in 2012? Have they, in other words, have has laws and protection laws gotten looser or tightened up? So <clears throat> the really the best way to look at it is you have to go back to a 1986, actually. Mm-hmm. So up until 86, Congress had passed a series of anti-retaliation laws, uh, some of them more effective than others. Right. In 86, they went to the False Claims Act, which was the old Lincoln law. They amended it. They modernized it. And, and this really is when whistleblowing shifted from protecting ethical employees who do the right thing to trying to motivate insiders with good evidence of white-collar crime and fraud, a major shift. After that shift occurred in 86, that law then became the False Claims Act, recognized as the most effective anti-fraud law in the United States. Why? Whistleblowing worked. It was a great experiment. They said, we'll incentivize, we'll protect, let's see what happens. And my God, boom, it unleashed the power of these insiders. That success led to, in 2006, the passage of a tax-related whistleblower law, and then the critical turning point, 2010, the Dodd-Frank Act that has the Commodities and Securities Whistleblower Laws. Those two whistleblowers' laws cover pretty much the whole worldwide publicly traded economy commodities and securities, a massive scope, including foreign bribery. Now, those laws have been working miraculously well, again, beyond expectation. So now you ask what happened. So uh, those are the most important laws from Obama. Then we come into the Trump administration. What has occurred? Well, what you're looking at is the older, more traditional anti-retaliation laws They've been under attack, especially with federal employees trying to out people's uh, identities. Certain administrative boards have completely failed. Uh, Federal employees today have among the worst legal protections of any person in the country. So, yeah, they've been under assault, but the assault is predicated on the weakness of these older laws. But if you flip to false claims, Dodd-Frank, IRS, what you will see is those laws continue to work pretty much as they did under Obama. Why? The, the laws themselves are very good. And the, the, the government agents who administer these laws are following the law. They're doing what they should do. So m- maybe there's a slight change in priorities. There's some issues around the corner. But all in all, they've been working really well. So from my perspective, the big issue isn't so much who is president. It's what can you get done in the laws themselves that will insulate the whistleblower? So, under, so yeah, that's where we're at. So under the, during the Trump regime, the only progress in legislation was in the area of tax which they've improved the law significantly, mostly because of Senator Charles Grassley being in charge of the Senate Finance Committee and a powerful figure there. He's been a big supporter of whistleblowers. Other than that, things have been fairly stalled. We are hoping that with the new administration, 
there, the, the Congress and the executive will look both at the loopholes that need to get fixed and the current laws that need to be bolstered. I also think that what we saw unfold when the president decided to start attacking whistleblowers who were critical of him, we hope that was an eye opener to the American public on all sides that these laws, some of the whistleblower laws are, are really bad and need to be fixed. I also, I was hoping that the COVID crisis would, would push forward uh, reforms to OSHA, which is occupational safety, still has not happened. I'm an optimist. I'm hoping with the new administration that progress can be made. Mm-hmm. And so uh, backing up a little bit in our conversation, you mentioned that one of the things that can bring whistleblower, whistleblowers forward are incentives. Besides money, what what would be an incentive that would bring a, a whistleblower forward? Because I'm trying to think outside. Let's say that it's like someone who's a part of a board of a billion dollar corporation and doesn't need money. What would be another incentive for that person to, to come forward? Okay, so the, fantastic question. And this brings us to what I would call the economic analysis of whistleblowing. When you strip whistleblowing of the stereotypes and preconceptions. So the first thing you look at, say positive incentive, which is a financial. So the economists who've looked at this and have studied it, these are really good, smart people, determined that there is no incentive to blow the whistle without a monetary reward. In fact, it's counterintuitive and most rational people would not because it's radically not to your own personal self-interest. So that's why without some form of positive incentive, and the only one people have come up to is money, you know, a thousand, I, I've seen it in companies where a thousand people know of some big wrongdoing and one person sticks their neck out, it gets chopped off, and then they can't even find a witness. So, you know, and, and so they concluded, it was kind of funny. The conclusion was the issue is not, it, they, they concluded that the issue was why would anyone ever blow the whistle? <laughs> These economists still couldn't figure it out. He's like, why would somebody do this? This is really crazy. Okay. On the other hand, there's a, there's a flip side called deterrence. So deterrence is when people voluntarily follow the law to, because of risk of detection and punishment. Uh, and that's really the, the true story of whistleblowing. And the studies have shown it. That for every one fraudster you catch, you're deterring another 100 or 50. The more deterrence, deterrence is, I mean, I've seen some studies and it's almost like 50 to one in terms of how they try to analyze it. It's easy for us to understand how much money is collected in sanctions. And under the False Claims Act, it's been over 60 billion. In the Swiss bank cases, it was 24 billion. These are big dollars being collected on cases triggered by whistleblowers. But it's harder to analyze deterrence. But let me just give you an example. After the whistleblower in the Swiss banking, Brad Bergenfeld, stepped forward and did what he did, 
And after it became clear that every Swiss banker could make a lot more money turning in their U.S. clients than servicing them, that doesn't mean they all became whistleblowers, but it was evident to the banking establishment that every single banker posed a risk. Guess what they did? They shut down all known U.S. accounts in Switzerland. They shut them down. Every known U.S. account, they just shut the account, handed people their check and said, get lost. Billions was repatriated to the United States. Billions. Uh, we estimate that the amount of capital that went from Switzerland back to U.S. banks is probably about half a trillion dollars. Massive, because they shut every account. That was called deterrence. So that's the flip side. So when you say, what else can be done? You just have to look at both sides of the coin. What can be done to incentivize? What can be done to deter? And there you have what I call a successful anti-fraud, anti-corruption program. Mm. And so we've seen people come out and you know, go to a news outlet or go to a journalist or, you know, some people go to their administration or, you know, their HR. So what are some of those incorrect versus correct ways of going about the process of filing a complaint or, you know, um, disclosing information that they believe is wrong? Fantastic question. And so it goes back to the origin, which is once you understand there's like 55, 60 different federal laws, the next step is to when you make a disclosure, try to figure out what law you're under, the best one possible. And those laws will tell you precisely what is protected. So if you use the law in the beginning, so you don't have to try to backfit it, like it was going to the press protected, was going to HR protected versus going to the Department of Justice uh, you don't have to try to backfit it and, and hope. You can be very conscious and clear that where you're making your disclosure will give you the maximum legal protection. After that, it's kind of chaos. Some laws say, believe it or not, you can have no protection if you report to your boss, a company lawyer, even an internal compliance program. They say, ha, you have nothing. You didn't go to the government. Uh, to be anonymous and confidential, you pretty much have to go into certain government programs that offer those protections. We highly recommend using laws that give you anonymity and confidentiality. It's very clear. If, it, if the company doesn't know who you are, then they don't know who to retaliate against. That also was the massive fight over the Ukraine whistleblower during the Trump impeachment, where there was a big struggle to try to have that person outed. Why? The folks who wanted to retaliate know how important it is to know who the whistleblower is and then subject them to attack. Whereas those on the other side knew those same lessons. And that's why those laws existed that gave that whistleblower some protection against revelation of identity. These are big th threshold issues. Let's talk about the press. I think that was on your mind. Some whistleblower laws explicitly will protect reports to the news media. 
that's very helpful in terms of government workers and their right to go to the news media. On the other hand, if you go to the news media, but you release confidential information, you can be crucified. So yes, you can do it, <coughs> but you're putting yourself at some risk. Whereas if you took the same information that may be confidential, but reported it, say, through the Department of Justice, you're at almost no risk whatsoever because you have a right to do that. So you have to figure out what you're blowing the whistle on. The other thing fascinating is some of these reward laws, SEC, commodities, tax, if the government learns about your allegation through a news media expose, you can still qualify for a reward as long as you can show you were the source of the news media expose. So this traces back to the very early days of whistleblowing, say in the 1960s, early 1970s, when there really were no effective whistleblower laws and most whistleblowers went to the news media as, as just a way to make an exposure like Daniel Ellsberg, a uh, deep throat in the Nixon time. He went to the news media. Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers. Uh, so what they did was everyone recognized that whistleblowers will go to the press. So it's amazing that these reward laws incorporate that history. Many people don't know that. They don't know that if they were the source to a big media expose, based on that, the government opens up a big investigation that they may qualify for a multi-million dollar award for doing the right thing. We don't want to take up too much of your time, but, you know, the last thing I want to say is, you know, clearly, you know, what I'm taking from this is that if if you're going to, you know, be a whistleblower and expose some sort of abuse or illegality um, or anything like that, it's really, really, really important to research the laws and the protection um, that's available to you and really understand that before proceeding ahead with anything. Seek legal counsel before yes. doing anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is the single most important lesson. And if you take that Birkenfeld case, doing it wrong can lead you in jail. Right. Mm -hmm. Doing mm -hmm. it right can get you a million bucks <laughs> or more. So which do you want to do? Same information, same motivation. Do you want prison? When you want to become rich. Now, it's, it is that stark. I also just want to make the one plug. So, absolutely. So, as you know, I did write a book called, the, it's now called The New Whistleblower's Handbook. For this very reason, you have no idea how many people, how many clients I've had, how many whistleblowers, and I talk to them, and they've already lost their case. You know, I talk to them. Like, my God, you, it's heartbreaking. So I, I would ask that you take a look at that. We can send you a copy to look at, but to make a plug that was specifically designed for any person thinking about blowing the whistle to give them guidance on what to do. For sure. Well, we do want to thank you so, so much for taking this time out of your day to join us for this podcast. You've given us some great food for thought and some really amazing, you know, examples and information. So we really appreciate your expertise on this topic today. Surely. Take care.
All right, everyone, thank you so much for joining us on this edition of What the Politics. We were super excited to have Attorney Stephen Cohn join us and talk about some of the whistleblower protections and what he's concerned about here in the United States, especially surrounding COVID and the workplace. And be sure to tune in to every episode of What the Politics at WNCT.com, or you can also tune in on Apple and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everyone, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.